Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have an interview with a good friend and uh, a very, very impressive athlete, a very impressive researcher, teacher, coach, extremely intelligent dude. His name is Christopher Barricat. Uh, I'm going to link all of his stuff in the description of this podcast so you guys can check out more on him because he puts out so much great content. But Chris is somebody I met at a seminar... <clears throat> shit uh 15 uh in 2015 so that would have been almost seven years ago um six and a half years ago now it's it just crazy how long ago that was and ever since then we've stayed in touch we've um worked together in a, in a couple different capacities he's been on the podcast multiple times so we're going to link those uh podcast episodes in the description of this one as well because they're always really amazing um and it's just been cool we've kind of followed each other's journeys uh closely because we're friends we text we talk we we uh would like to hang out more but he's in florida i'm in washington However, I've watched him move up in the ranks as a researcher, as a professor out of college, as a natural bodybuilder, as a coach, and he's watched me grow my business, build my family, um, build as a coach, as a content creator, and it's just been unbelievable to do it and uh, stay in touch this whole journey. So this is a little bit of a catch-up, but we use this time to catch up on all things training, nutrition, research, his bodybuilding prep, and I think you guys are going to take a lot away from this. We're going to learn a little bit more about how he's approached this prep of his competition versus the last one, so even if you're not a bodybuilder, you're going to get a lot of lessons and insights on how to get leaner, how to do things maybe more intelligently, maybe a little bit more intuitively, and a little bit more easy to get by and and get through your fat loss phases. Uh, We are going to touch on intensity over volume and frequency and why effort in the gym and the load and the intensity that you are using the gym might actually be the best route to take for changing your body composition over enough volume or frequency despite what the literature says and this turns into a really really good um, conversation that spins into multiple things like maintaining muscle while you're traveling maintaining muscle while you're in a deficit um, how important carbs versus fats are when to shift calories really everything. I mean, we went a lot of different ways. You guys are going to get a ton out of this one. So um, stay tuned, grab a pad, grab a pen. There's a lot that you can take notes on with this. And again, make sure you go check out his content because it's unbelievable. And you can also check out the content that him and I have done together uh, on this podcast in the past. So without any further ado, let's get into this uh, amazing interview with my good friend, Christopher Barricat. All right, dude, Chris, you might be one of our most returned guests. There's like only a few people that I've even had on the podcast a couple times. And you're, this is going to be, I mean, including the roundtable, Will, I think this is like number three or four. So um, yes, I'm stoked to have you. So guys listening, we've already done uh, an intro for Chris uh, many times. So if you haven't heard any of the other episodes, I highly recommend going back. We'll put the, the links to those in the description because they're always filled with a ton of information. And Chris is somebody I've known for, so we met at the Physique Summit in Missouri in like 2015, 2016. I think it was 2015, which it was, is wild. Yeah, man. it was a while ago. And uh, yeah. we were both, uh, you were in school. I think I was like finishing up, just like being a trainer and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And um, we were young meatheads just getting getting our feet wet, you know. So it's been cool to see like yeah. both of our journeys and staying in touch this whole time. And uh, Chris, as from then till now, has just like in the education and research world, dude, you've just grown more and more. You've done so much more things as time has gone on and it's been so cool because there's even times where I'm interviewing people I'm talking to people and they will cite your research and I'm like this is so dope or I'm I'm reading an article from somebody I've always followed and you've always followed probably too and they're referencing your research you know um, even in research reviews so man it's been super cool for me to see from afar because I'm a geek and and I just love it man so I'm super happy for you Um, and today we're going to get into a bunch of that but first I want to start with uh, your recent prep it's been going super well Um, it's coming to a finale here soon but I kind of want to just know in general um, if you have any new insights or lessons anything you've done different this prep um, you know we don't have a a huge bodybuilding community but everybody listening this is interested in improving their body comp and I think if there's anybody to study to improve your knowledge of changing body composition, it's natural bodybuilders. They're the best yeah. at it, you know? So, um, any insights from this, man, this has been your best prep yet. For sure, man. I appreciate it. And before I answer the question, I just want to say, I feel the same exact way about you, man. I remember going out to lunch after the seminars and just talking about like what we want to do with our careers and then seeing everything you've done is freaking phenomenal and it's inspiring and it's, 
really awesome to see, man. So I'm super happy for you. And uh, let's just both keep crushing it, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Yeah, for sure, man. So um, in regards to this prep, um, yeah, a lot of things are drastically different than previous preps. Um, and I have taken away some valuable lessons that I think can help a lot of other people that are listening right now, as well as things that I kind of am applying towards my coaching with my clients. So one of the biggest changes for me, this prep is it's by far been my lowest training frequency, um, primarily not due to a change in my split per se, but more so due to prioritizing rest days. So in the past, I would really be pretty strict in regards to following my split and pre-programming my rest days. So I would train two days on, one day off, four days on, one day off repeat. Like that's what I did in 2017. And then a lot of times in my improvement seasons, I would train five days every seven days and it'd be two days on, one day off, three days on, one day off. So like Wednesday and Sunday was like the religious you know, off days, like always. Um, and this time around the, the training split isn't much different, but I do not stress about whether I complete that split in seven days or 10 days based on taking more rest days as needed. And what that has allowed me to do is almost ensure that every training session my PRS, like your perceived recovery score going into the training session has been much higher this go around. And therefore my ability to maintain performance or progress performance has been drastically improved um, compared to like trying to hold on to numbers like threads um, or trying to hold on to a number by a thread or even regressing on performance just because I was too uh, worried about resting or like I was too gung-ho about like, all right, today's a training day. So I got to train. Um, that's been the biggest, biggest change. And it's allowed me to keep my intensity and effort much, much higher. Well, and there's been some, uh, there was, I think you actually talked a little bit about this in one of your posts and, and I know Jackson Piaz posted about this too. I was almost shocked. It was like, uh, and you can correct me cause I don't know if this is the exact uh, ratio, but it was almost like one eighth of your volume to maintain muscle or something like that. And I think, uh, a lot of people, I think we should train how we train to build muscle, to maintain muscle to an extent, but it also is important to remember that like, and you can be the intestines of this when you're prepping, your primary focus is to maintain muscle. So if you can keep intensity in the gym, you just need to keep one eighth or whatever it ends up being way less volume to actually maintain that muscle. Sure. I'm assuming that's allowing you to actually keep that intensity way higher and not sure. honestly mentally stress about it probably either. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the one eighth reference is what has been demonstrated in the scientific literature. I would not apply that practically just yeah. because they're not examining people in a strict calorie deficit that are trying to go from, you know, 12% body fat to 4% body fat. So I do think that one eighth amount of volume probably does apply to general population that is no longer, you know, their goal is no longer to progress or, or grow or create further adaptations, but just to maintain those adaptations, you probably could get away with around one eighth of your training volume, but I won't practically apply that yeah. to a contest prepper. Um, like you said, at the, like, I think doing the same amount of volume is going to be the most that you need to do while dieting. And you definitely shouldn't be doing more volume while dieting. Um, so if you think of it, like, so the biggest change for me, man, I, I, in the past, I realized I was doing a lot of junk volume. I was doing a lot of junk volume from my warm up sets and, and including my working sets. Like it was just too much overall volume and my warm up sets were slightly fatiguing rather than just like purely preparatory going into the working sets. Um, and something that I think is going on there, especially for naturals is all the volume that we do. And whenever we're resistance training, it's causing some amount of muscle protein breakdown and our ability to maximize protein synthesis is going to be hindered in a calorie deficit because we have fewer nutrients coming in as a whole. Um, so if you're digging a deeper ditch by doing more junk volume or training too frequently or whatever it may be, 
and you can't refill that ditch with your resources like amino acids and calories and so on and so forth, then you're setting yourself up not to maintain muscle, but to lose muscle. So you're digging yourself that ditch. And I think that's what a lot of people do. I think that's what I've done in the past. Um, and yeah, just the ability to know that you're going to perform less work in the gym allows your mind to be mentally prepared to attack it with a higher intensity rather than like kind of looking at your training uh, volume or your training sheet and saying like, damn, this is going to be a long freaking day. Or like, this is so much that lies ahead of me by doing less. It kind of excites you to make the most out of every rep and every set because there's not too much going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I literally can't even, I mean, it makes a lot of sense too. Why would you be able to recover from the same amount of volume if you're taking in a lot less calories, right? Um, not to mention the other cascade of stress responses that happen when you're in a deficit too, you know? Yes. But I don't even know if I could, from like an enjoyment perspective, you know, as somebody who loves lifting, I don't even think I could do one-eighth of my training volume. I would just, you know, I wouldn't be doing anything in gym. So I think, I think that study is almost even more applicable to people who are like, you know, I got my result. I actually don't like working out. So what is the bare minimum I have to do to stay healthy and maintain this? You know, um, I, I agree. I think maybe 50%. I could maybe do that if I was on a high volume yeah. program, cut it in half. But even then it's like, I like to be in the gym. You know, that's hard. Yeah. Same. I agree. I agree with that. And I think that data is really applicable to someone like, let's say you, you take a general lifestyle client and they crush it for six months. You know, they really dedicate themselves for six months. You can make a lot of progress in six months, uh, especially as a newbie. Right. Mm -hmm. And then let's say they get to this point where like, they're pretty happy with uh, how they're looking um, and they still want to progress, but they're cool with progress coming at a slower rate. And they kind of want to, they want to take that time and energy they've been putting into the gym and just take their foot off the pedal a bit. So let's just say they were training five days per week for six months and they were super dedicated. Maybe they want to train three days per week now. Like that's like the perfect scenario where it's like, okay, we can taper things back. You'll absolutely maintain and you should actually progress um, just at a slightly slower rate because your level of advancement's higher and because you're not doing as much total work. Yeah. So I think it's great for people just to understand like, Hey, you can really dedicate yourself to this for X amount of time, develop good habits, but it's not something you need to do five to six days per week forever. Like I actually plan on training three to four days per week, this upcoming improvement season and, and taking my foot off the gas in a sense. So I can kind of water other plants in my life, you yeah. know, and, and make sure that that's growing the way it should. Um, and man, there's, there's a couple of world champion natural bodybuilders that only train three to four days per week in prep. And I'm just like, when I saw that anecdotal evidence slap me in the face, I'm like, dude, I just need to make sure every training session is on point, but I don't need to be there six days a week. Like this is, this is a little too much. Yeah. I mean, your mental energy going into it is so much stronger with three days a week too. And I think there's a, I've gotten this question for our Q and A's so many times, man, in different variations or scenarios of like, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. Am I going to lose muscle? What do I do with my training? And it's oh, the same response every time. Don't worry about it. Like, you know, it, most of the people listening who ask this question, they're pretty damn dedicated and serious. They're not stepping on stage necessarily, but yeah. I mean, they're into this. And I tell them all the time, like, hey, when I go on vacation, even if it's just three days, I just don't train and it's fine. Sure. Like nothing happens. Yeah. If I go away for two, two weeks, I'll bring a band. I'll do some band pull parts and push ups. Maybe I'll find a gym if, I, if it's like an easy way to do it, but I definitely yeah. don't overthink or stress or like, I have to stick to the periodized plan five days a week sure. that I've been running because it's not the end of the world. I think for me, I think it was Ben Pikulski. And obviously this is a different realm when we start talking about unnatural athletes, but, um, he talked about taking like a month off after his Olympia, uh, every year or something like that. Every time he would do the Olympia, he would take like a full month off of like serious training. And I, that was for me, was like, Holy shit. Okay. If he, I mean, I know he's unnatural, but a month, like if he's doing that, yeah. then I'll be fine with not lifting for a week if I need to. But, um, in, in this scenario, this is a good topic. And, uh, and, and I wrote this down because you posted this and I want to kind of put context to this, but you said intensity cannot be sacrificed and should take priority over the maintenance of volume or frequency. Um, so we can spend this a million ways to talk about intensity, volume or frequency. But my question is number one, did you write that in the perspective of, a deficit and in prep, like intensity needs to be the priority or like kind of top, which is 
align with what we're talking about right now. But does this change when we go into an offseason or a gaining phase or when somebody's at maintenance, they're trying to slowly build muscle, whatever the scenario is, they're not necessarily in a deficit. Does it still sure. apply to that? Do you think effort and intensity is, uh, I guess, do you think intensity is more important than define what you mean by intensity? Because there's different ways I to do. look at that. I do think intensity is more important um, just because I feel like the primary signal for our muscles to have this positive adaptation to increase protein synthesis is going to be mechanical tension. So I'm defining intensity in two ways. It's um, essentially yeah, effort, like um, training close to failure, as well as the absolute load that you're actually lifting because that load is equaling X amount of mechanical tension. So like a quick example is like yesterday I did legs and I, my primary mover in that, in that training session is a reverse band hack squat and my off season PR at 23 pounds heavier than I currently am is five plates and a quarter for like eight to 10 reps. That's the, that's the best I've ever done. Yesterday, I still kept five plates in a quarter, but I only cranked out four reps. So even though my volume load has decreased and I have lost reps, the fact that my quadriceps still felt the same amount of intensity, the same amount of mechanical tension, it is forcing them to recruit the same motor units, the same muscle fibers, and it's maximizing that signal. Um, I then reduced the load and did more quote unquote volume or more work, more volume load with a back offset, but I still kept that top set the same, even though I couldn't maintain my rep, my rep goal. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and I've been doing my best to apply that across the board on all movements. So even if I've lost reps on some of my movements, um, I'm keeping that top load the same as what it was at my, my all time strongest. And then I'm doing more work or more total effective reps with back off loads, but I'm keeping that top set as heavy as, as, as it's been. Cause it's the same, it's the same signal, you know, like if it was a hundred pound dumbbell, my body, my chest is feeling that hundred pound dumbbell from 24 weeks ago to now. Um, I'm not going to take that hundred pound dumbbell and now use a, a 75 pound dumbbell just because I lost reps. I'm going to keep the hundred pound dumbbell as long as I can keep form and execution still safe. You know, I'm not risking injury. I'm losing repetitions fine, but I'm keeping tension the same. And then, okay, do back offsets with lighter loads to get your effective reps in. Makes sense. I think that, uh, I mean, that, you know, there's a, a neural component to strength and, and being able to produce that force, obviously. And then, like you said, the whole, the dig in the ditch analogy is perfect for this, um, which applies mostly to a deficit. But do you still feel that same way when you're in a surplus or when you're trying to build muscle? And, and the reason I ask that is because so much literature has come out saying volume is the most important thing, you know, every, and everybody yeah. says that. And my question is, why do you think that it may not be if, if you do believe the same exact theory for when you're not in a deficit. And then also, is there anything, because I know sometimes with research and people forget to, to think about this, it may be more difficult to prove what you're saying right now through research because of volume is a very easy metric to ensure quality control over in a study versus somebody's perceived effort and level of intensity. I mean, in my opinion, that's a skill. Like you actually have to lift for a while. Like I thought I was an advanced lifter and then I hit like five, six years of training and I was like, oh no, I'm still, still an intermediate. Cause now I'm actually learning <laughs> how to maximally produce force and get to failure, you know? hundred percent, man. So I, I will just flat out say I disagree and I don't think volume is the, the primary driver, especially the way that volume is often defined in the literature. Um, we put out a study, I think it was published in 2020. It's all Bay and colleagues. Um, we had subjects perform either 12 sets per week, 18 sets per week, or 24 sets per week for, for leg training. Um, and all three groups res, uh, responded similarly. Actually, the 12 set group and the 18 set group performed slightly better than the 24 set group in terms of strength and size adaptations. But more importantly, I hate generalizing X amount of sets to all these people. When we looked at the individual responses, it's all over the place. 
you know, some people in, in, in different groups are responding super well, some people are responding poorly, regardless of volume. So that study was the first study that asked the subjects, okay, well, how many sets per week are you doing before the commencement of this study? And then we randomized the subjects based on their previous set volume, which is super important. So that was like one step in the right direction because all these other studies, like let's say we look at a study that compared nine sets, 27 sets and 45 sets, or we looked at a study that compared five sets, 10 sets, 15 sets, 20 sets. They don't ask the subjects how much volume is that muscle group currently doing before we start they just throw you into a group mm -hmm. so some subjects are doing way more volume than before some subjects are doing way less volume than before so what are we looking at we're looking at literally data that we're throwing at the board and we're seeing what sticks like mm -hmm. it's it's shit it's complete shit and it's so frustrating so right now we are completing a follow-up study where we have three groups we have a control group that is doing the same number of sets that they've been doing. So if you do nine sets, Cody, and you're in the control group, you're doing nine sets throughout the entire study. If I do 15 sets before the study starts and I'm in the control group, I'm doing 15 sets per week throughout the study. Then we have another group that's increasing their previous set volume by 30%. And then we have a third group that's increasing their previous set volume by 60%. So everyone's volume is actually way different, but it's relative to their previous work. And that's going to give us a better understanding if this theoretical MEV and MRV concept that Dr. Mike Israel talks a lot about, uh, we're going to see if that kind of plays out over the course of a eight week training study, which again, there's a limitation there. Um, you know, maybe, maybe everyone responds great for eight weeks, but maybe that 60% volume increase wouldn't be able to sustain that longer than eight weeks. So then maybe their performance would start to drop. Like we don't really know, but it's, we're moving in the right direction, right? It's way better than just throwing people in random groups and assigning them random amounts of volume. Um, so long story short, sorry for the rant. Um, long story short, I don't think volume is the most important thing, so to speak. If we talk about volume, intensity, and frequency, I'm going to put intensity first. I love that. Because we, because we do know, and, and the reason I'll put intensity first too, is because there's a lot of data showing very similar results between one time per week, two times per week, three times per week, right? Like people argue about the bro split versus push pull legs or, or full bodies and this and that. And like, we already see very similar results um, when we do look at frequency studies. So I think volume is too misunderstood and the data is not strong enough. And at the end of the day, you're not going to get a adaptation response without some sort of intensity being there. Um, like, you know, that we can't train at RPE four and get great results. So I'm just going to put intensity as the, the yeah. primary and then everything else, you know, they're related to one another. You can't move one dial without moving the other two, but yeah, I'm still going to put that first. I mean, I mean, it's even hard for, there's some research that, uh, I don't know who put it out. I know that uh, I, I was reading a review from Mike Zordos, I believe, but it was like RIR 4 and RPE 6 still produce the same results as RPE 8 or 9 as along those lines. And I'm like, I just, I can't believe that. I just, there's just yeah. no way. Cause I know what both of those feel like. And I just know that I'm not maximally stimulated or contracting a muscle yeah. at that level. So I'm a, uh, I'm a fan of, especially in my client prescriptions, always staying in uh, for like working sets, eight to 10 RPE or one to three, one to two RIR, um, even zero sometimes, because a lot of times people, I will put zero and they don't even go to zero really, you know? And it's, mm. and that's why I think understanding the client that you're prescribing the effort to is important too, because if I know somebody can't really take it all the way to failure, I'm going to prescribe a higher RPE or lower RIR because I know that's going to put them a couple reps shy of failure, right? Versus somebody who's very advanced. I might actually purposely say RPE seven or eight. Cause I know if I don't tell them to pull back a little bit, they're going to take it all the way. Um, but I think you, you made a good point on the, the frequency thing too. And I'd like to get your opinion on this. There's, there's a couple questions I have of the research of the frequency and of the volume on sure. the frequency one. Um, when I heard people first talking about, you know, two to three times a week is like the, the sweet spot for frequency. It just made so much more sense to me because when I go to the gym, it's like, 
if I do a bench press and then a dumbbell press and then a fly and then I'm trying to do more chest, like I'm just so fatigued. There's no way I'm getting the same amount of intensity or volume because I've burnt out. But if I split it up into two days, it's better for me. And then I see people like Doug Miller and I'm like, this guy does a bro split and he's been doing a bro split and he's natural and he's huge. He's huge. I mean, he's the yeah. world champion, you know? And then I yeah. thought about it. I was like, well, I spent an hour in the gym. So let's put context behind. Does he spend only an hour? Or does he spend two hours? Because you know, shit, if I took longer rest periods between, maybe I could like buffer some of that lactate. I'd actually be able to perform just as well. So I think like in a research study, when they have two groups doing one time a week frequency and two times and three times, they all have X amount of time to train. It makes it very different. You know, maybe sure. with a lower frequency, you need more time in the gym, so on and so forth. Would that be an accurate way to improve the literature to prove kind of what you're saying? of like the frequency doesn't matter as much. Yeah, there's the way that scientific research is conducted, there's always limitations, you know? So I actually kind of want to not even talk about the research to answer this question and just share my, my honest thoughts because yeah. I think it actually makes more real, real world sense, to be honest with you, um, especially when a training study is eight to 12 weeks long. Yeah. Like we're not looking at the stuff for six months or a year. Um, but anyway, I think um, JP over in the UK made a post on this a while ago, and I think he, he nailed it best. And I totally agree with him. I think beginners should do really well with full body training. So lower amounts of volume per muscle group per training session. Intermediates will do great with like an upper lower or a push pull legs. Uh, high level intermediates, same kind of thing, like push pull legs ish. But when you become really advanced for hypertrophy, I'm kind of getting back to understanding the support for a bro split ish. Um, I don't think you need to hit everything once every seven days. I think that's a little bit too long of a, of a delay, but like if you have a full split, that's like three or four days long, but it's like legs, push, pull arms or something or like legs, back, chest, shoulders, and arms, that's four days. And then you hit everything like every fifth or sixth day. Mm. I think that's awesome for intermediates. And, and the reason why I think the frequency can go down as you become more advanced is because as you become stronger, the systemic fatigue that you accumulate in one training session from lifting really, really heavy I believe is much greater um, than when you first start off, even when it's relatively the same. So I'll provide a quick example. Let's say you're a beginner and your one RM back squat is, I'm just going to use 200 pounds just to uh, make numbers really simple. Okay. Let's say you can do a one RM for, for uh, 200 pounds. So let's just say you use 80% of your one RM on a lot of your working sets that means what you're working with 160 pounds, right? That's relatively 80% of your one RM. So it's still 80%. If you take a really advanced guy that their 80% is 365, I think it's way harder to recover from the amount of muscle damage and systemic fatigue. So local and systemic damage and fatigue accumulation, like everything that comes with it, I think it's way harder to recover from lifting 365 than it is 180, even if it's relatively 80% of someone's one around. So another thing to consider is when you're getting stronger and stronger, your volume load is becoming way higher. So even if that person did 185 for 10 reps, sorry, 160 for 10 reps, and the other person is doing 365 for 10 reps, this person's producing a lot more volume load. So I think it's just harder to recover from and they need more time off for local recovery and systemic recovery. And um, that's why I like that. Okay, the less advanced you are, the more frequently you train with less volume per muscle group because you don't need that much of a stimulus for that muscle to get it to respond. And then as you become more advanced, you kind of decrease your frequency a little bit and you increase your volume per session. So that's how I would go about it. That's another thing too, uh, the difference between weekly volume versus volume per session, and then how that kind of can shift depending on your level of expertise and your goals and yeah. your, even like how much time you have to spend in the gym. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I heard, uh, 
I don't remember if it was on my podcast or another, but Steffi Cohen was talking about how she takes uh, her main lifts to failure or basically like within really close to one max every single time she trains them. And the person was kind of just like, that just doesn't sound intelligent. She's like, well, I only deadlift once every three weeks. And she was like, because once I got so strong in my skill level or, or, and I've heard other people say this too, like your skill to be able to maximally recruit motor units and the neurological capacity to lift that heavy and create that much tension, everything, it does take more out of you. And so like the, the stronger I got, the better I got at lifting, the less often I did these lifts, which is why an upper lower split of maxing out every week on one of the lifts or taking it that close to to mechanical failure or even just neurological failure, if it's, it's really low rep becomes riskier doing it at a high frequency, you know? So that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've never, I've just never put it in the application of a bro split. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, again, I don't follow powerlifting too much, but I freaking love learning from other people and my ears are, you know, wherever I can learn. So I love the, uh, iron culture podcast and like Eric Helms to me is just like such a good communicator Mm -hmm. and educator. Um, I heard him talking about how, when this whole periodization became really popular in the powerlifting or the power building powerlifting community, a lot of people were benching, squatting and deadlifting three times per week. And the injury rates were just like through the roof (laughs) and everyone realized like, okay, we probably shouldn't be deadlifting um, three times per week. So then it kind of went like a lot of people still bench three times per week. A lot of people squat twice per week and a lot of people deadlift once per week now. Mm -hmm. But again, they tried taking quote unquote science that is being performed on college kids. That is, you know, they're considered trained in the literature and then they're trying to take what is being utilized on these college kids that are between 18 and 22 that are probably deadlifting anywhere from 275 to 495. And then they're trying to apply it to themselves when they're deadlifting 495 to 705. And it's like, dude, even if it's, 80% of their one RM or 90% of your one RM, it is a different world. Like those absolute loads make a big, big difference. So that's where like trying to apply the literature, like bit people in the ass, you know, Mm -hmm. all these coaches were trying to be hashtag science, hashtag evidence-based. And it was like, you're, you're missing, you're missing the forest for the tree. You're so zoomed in on this one tree or this one research paper that you're just missing it. man. Yeah. I think looking at research and trying to figure out, what was the, I mean, what was the, the reasoning or the, the like literal method? And then how can I alter that for real world scenario? Cause even I remember when sure. DUP was first really being popularized. Um, and it was like, Oh, bench squad deadlift three times a week, you know, speed yeah. power day, strength day, hypertrophy day. Um, and I did it and I got great results until I got injured. Right. And this is a yeah. lot is years ago. Cause it, I mean, this is how long ago it was. Um, and it took me probably like eight or nine weeks. I think it was less than 10 for sure. Before I started really kind of having like some low back issues, stuff like that. And if you look at research, usually it's less than 12 weeks for sure. So of course it worked in that research, you know, um, it's actually like I was, uh, I saw Jeff Nipper post, uh, about his new power building book. And, and I'm always, whenever anybody's launching anything, I'm always like looking at the sales page, looking at their post, just that's what I do. Yeah. And, uh, he was, uh, alternating weeks and it, it, it's actually really smart for a power building program. I saw it and I was like, oh, that's a really good way of doing it because of what you're saying, right? Like he has week one is strength and you have like the compound lifts. So I think you train like three or four days a week maybe. And then week two is hypertrophy. And so mm-hmm. you have like a, a push-pull leg split or an upper-lower split. But either way, you're not even doing those heavy compounds that whole second week. So it's like your odd weeks, you're doing less training sessions with heavier loads with the compounds. Mm-hmm. And then your even weeks, you're doing more bodybuilding stuff. So like, that's a smart yeah, approach yeah. because like we're saying – you know, if you're lifting that heavy, it's probably a good idea to do it less frequently, you know, and, and with all the I research care. coming out on maintaining strength and hypertrophy with less volume, we don't have to worry about as much. So, um, a lot of this stuff is cool. And, and, you know, that, that brings up my next question was with the volume research, you mentioned 45 sets. And I think it was like a, of course, I mean, they're all, they all are really, <laughs> but Brad Schoenfeld study with uh, about 40 sets per muscle group yeah. per week. And I remember that just sounding insane, but I want to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in the research study, it was like, leg press, bench press, and lat pull down, right? Or something like that to where it's like, okay, yeah, that's 40 plus sets per week. But I mean, they're not doing lateral raises, rear delt flies, overhead press, and then doing volume four, chest, bench, flies, and then lats, pull down, straight arm, pull downs, you know, like all these different variations. 
So I think people got confused with that too, where it's like 40 sets is the best. And it's like, nobody's doing 40 sets per muscle group across the body. Like that's, I mean, you're yeah, just going to yeah. break yourself. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I honestly don't uh, like memorize the methodology and the study design perfectly there. Um, but I do, what I do recall is some of the muscles that were measured there was like quadriceps, triceps, maybe biceps. So it's not even like they looked at pec growth per se. Um, and then I'm sure they had like whole body composition via maybe DEXA or seven site or whatever, um, a different piece of technology, but yeah, it's just some people can really try to take that volume research and, uh, they kind of get lost in it, man. And it's just, it's not necessarily worth it. Um, one thing I, I quickly wanted to share related to volume intensity and frequency was, and, and this just came into my head now, like while we're chatting is when I was in 2019, I fell into like a really bad funk. I was like in this depressive mode for a while. Stress was super high. I lost around like anywhere from like 13 to 16 pounds of just like body weight, you know, like totally unintentional. Like I did not get shredded. I just lost a lot of body weight and like my body fat percent basically stayed the same. So I lost a ton of lean body mass and I lost like a little bit of fat mass and it just like evened out. Right. Um, and at that time, um, I had very low appetite. I was just working myself into the ground. Cortisol was super high. Um, I had very, very low appetite. I was still eating a decent amount of protein. Um, again, like, so I'm used to eating like 225 grams of protein, right? For sure. I was eating 140 grams of protein per day, probably closer to 180. So that's still like high protein according to the literature, right? right? For someone who weighs 170 ish pounds, I lost so much muscle, so much lean body mass, even though I was training at least three days per week. Like I, I intentionally changed my split to full body off, upper, off, lower, off, whatever. Like that was my three days. It was full body, upper, lower. So I was intentionally still hitting everything twice per week. So my volume and my frequency was similar to what it previously was. If anything, volume was a tad lower. The biggest difference there was my intensity was shit. I was going into the gym, just going through the motions. I was stressed. I was thinking about work while I was in the gym. Um, and I thought to myself, doing something is better than doing nothing. So let me give myself 60 to 75 minutes to take my mind off everything that's going on and get into the gym. So yeah, even though volume definitely did drop, frequency stayed the same. And the thing that dropped off the most was intensity. And I think that's why I lost so much muscle. Obviously my calories were low. So uh, th that was an interesting experience. I need to kind of talk more about that, like on my own page and stuff, um, I guess in hindsight, because th that also makes you realize like, again, everyone talks about energy balance. I was in, I was in a calorie deficit. I lost 16, I lost 16 pounds or so, but that points out the importance of your macronutrient consumption, mm -hmm. right? It's not just energy balance. Like I lost a shit ton of muscle. Um, so I just hate how people oversimplify things and I probably need to, to share some of that, um, sooner than later. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a good topic to go down. I, I think especially because, I mean, everything goes in it's kind of like a pendulum, right? It was, it was like, uh, you know, protein timing, meal timing, supplements, all this stuff. And then it was like, oh no, it's just calories that matter. So it doesn't matter. You can fast, you can eat low fat, high fat, low carb, whatever. And then it was kind of like back to a little bit more of uh, low carb, high fat. And I think like high carb, low fat's kind of coming back. It just is constantly switching around. Sure. Um, I'm a huge fan of low fat, high carb. Obviously I know there's a, a risk of running too low fat. Um, but I also, you know, I've had people, and this is anecdotal, um, who are like working through our training app and stuff, asking me questions. And, uh, there's been a, a couple of times where guys have been like, I've just been playing around and their fats are really low, man. Like to the point where I'm like, man, I, w I wouldn't advise that, but they're not in a deficit. And they're like, I feel fine. Blood works good. Like I feel great. And I'm like, okay, well maybe this is where, you know, calories kind of come into play. Like if you're not in a deficit, maybe the rule of thumb with like, you need to have a certain amount of fat to support hormones and health matters as much. I think it still matters a little bit depending on the individual. Um, but I'd love your thoughts on like one, what you're doing with your prep, but then also too, like your thoughts on the carb debate, you know, cause I think a lot of people sure. do fall into the low carb, especially cause it, I mean, you drop your carbs, you're going to lose 
water quickly and sometimes it works well. Um, yeah. And there's also people that are, uh, I know people that I'm, I actually know who are, they just like low carb better and they look great. So it's hard because it does work for some people. But a lot of the people that I have found who are promoting lower carb um, that are, that do look really good, they got their results a long time ago. And they haven't always sure. done this, you know. It's it's the same thing with the intuitive eating where people are like, you, you know, you don't need to track macros. I'm like, look, you were a restrictive bodybuilding dieter to get where you got and now you know what you know so you can be more intuitive to maintain it. But it's that's not what got you there. So um, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that because it's, you know, not a lot of research. There's a little bit of research showing that, you know, fats are probably going to store a little bit easier than carbs, especially if you're, you know, overeating. Um, but, man, just look at bodybuilders. What do they do most commonly? Yeah. High protein, high carb. I'm really low fat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. I think, again, as you mentioned, there's so many individual factors and context is always key. Um, but generally speaking, I like looking at someone's just overall lifestyle and preferences. So if someone's extremely sedentary and like the only time they're getting their, their movement in for the day is when they're lifting for 60 to 90 minutes that day. I'm not going to blast them with carbs, so to speak. Um, but I'm going to ensure they have a sufficient amount of carbs to perform really well in the gym and still recover really well. Um, but if they are more sedentary, I do try to get them to have at least like one meal per day that is like fat and protein based and like fibrous veg. Um, if they're just like super sedentary. So I think, you know, there's ways you can go about nutrient timing and stuff uh, like that. But at the same time, if you're training again, are you doing more powerlifting work? Are you doing more hypertrophy work? If you're doing more hypertrophy work, you need that glucose coming in, man. It's very, very glycolytic in nature. So um, I just don't think you're going to perform at your best if you're very high fat, very low carb, if you're doing like a, if you're training like a bodybuilder. So I think it's important to take that stuff into consideration. Uh, take it to consideration. What foods do you enjoy more? Like what do you want to actually buy at the grocery store and prep yourself? Like that's super important. Um, and I do love the fact I, I saw you mentioned this. I see your emails. I see your post, and I see you mentioned, like, I think you said like intuitive eating is BS or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and you, you highlighted the importance of developing good habits and increasing your nutritional knowledge. So maybe one day down the road, you can take an intuitive approach, but if you're like working with a coach, um, you probably need more guidance and you need to be a little bit more diligent so you can learn what are the proper portions for you per meal or per day. You know, what quantity should you be eating of what types of food? And then down the road, you can move towards intuitive eating. But like, I can't imagine trying to teach somebody how to intuitive eat without teaching them how to track first. It doesn't, you know, that's like putting the, uh, the cart before the horse, you know, like that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, that's, that was a quick rant. I could keep going on on what I did this prep, but I want to give you an opportunity. Yeah, to interject no, I mean, I've, I've beaten that to death on this podcast in my post. So I'm, I mean, it's just good to hear you uh, agree with it. And, you know, I had a lot of people, DM me and a lot of people share every time I do that, like they, they agree. And then there occasionally there's like the person who like pops in, who's like an intuitive eating guru. And, um, last time I got hit with some comments that were just cracking me up. Cause they're like, you obviously don't know what intuitive eating is. I was like, did you read the whole caption? Because I actually like said exactly what it is. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's the process after you don't want to change your physique. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really what it is. And I think that's great. If you don't want to change then you're just maintaining. You, sh you should eventually learn how to intuitively eat to maintain your physique. And that applies for, I mean, shit, like if one of us is going on a, a two to three week vacation, we want to not track. Cool. We're also not going on vacation expecting to PR while we're there. Like we're, right. you know, we're going to go away and have some free time and, and be intuitive and, and be able to moderate what we're doing without overindulging. So, um, yeah. but like you said, you need boundaries and, and structure to be able to develop those skills and habits with your diet. Um, but I would love to hear uh, how you went about the your prep with your diet as far as yeah. macros. And, and especially because, like, for people listening, you're going into your third, potentially fourth show. We're just going to say your third and fourth because we're, we're confident. But um, <laughs> the uh, you've been – I mean, when was your first show? How many months ago? Was it September? Uh, the, was the first, first show was September 25th, exactly okay. a month ago, basically. So it'll be September, October, November? Yeah. Cool. And then I'm done. Okay. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> 
So yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be cool to hear what you've done. I mean, what, what approach you took. And then also obviously um, it, it takes a lot of, uh, um, I mean, just discipline in general, but obviously a lot of methodical planning to be able to be able to peak and then peak again. And then a month later peak again, you know? Yeah, man. No, I'm, I'm pumped to chat about this. So it's been an evolution, dude. Um, so I'm going to quickly share like what 2011 looked like for me super quick. My first season ever. Um, I didn't know much at all, but I was basically eating the same bro foods every day, but tracking it in my fitness pal. So I had like a very brief understanding of like calories and macros and whatever. Um, I literally like tracked really, really tightly for only like seven weeks and got in stage shape in like seven weeks, but I was a twig. I was a super, super small 19 year old kid, whatever good experience. But I ate like a bro. Like it was, uh, I haven't had tilapia since 2011. Cause I ate a lot of tilapia in 2011, <laughs> put it that way. Um, and then 2013, my pendulum shifted and I was all about Alberto Nunez's pop tarts. And like, I was an IIFYM freaking maniac. So I was eating, I shouldn't say that I was eating like pretty micro dense too, like throughout the staples of the day, but I would always fit in snacks. Um, and I was just tracking macros. I was like, yeah, macros are king. Like this is all that matters. That was 2013. Then 2017, I was eating way more whole foods. I was like, screw this process stuff, like whole foods all the way, but still tracking my macros to the T where I was like weighing out like cloves of garlic or like weighing out my ketchup, like anything that had calories that I was consuming, it was being tracked. And now, and I had like very specific macro targets in 2017, where like, if I had to hit 225 grams of protein per day, I was going to be like plus or minus three, if, if not spot on, right? Like I was spot on with my numbers this prep has been very, very different, bro. And it's been super cool. Um, it's been really intuitive to be honest with you. Like I have an idea of like what my macros want to be, but I'll just like adjust in the middle of the day or like first thing in the morning based on how I feel. Or like if I hit 215 grams of protein, like I am not going to go and add 10 more grams. Or if I eat 240 grams of protein, I'm not going to be mad that I'm over by 15. Like it was way more rangy. Mm. And it was like in the past, I would check in with myself once per week as if I was a client. I didn't do that at all this prep. Um, I just adjusted as I went man, like day to day. And it was like, it's been a super cool experience. Um, and that's how I've even been peaking. Like, I'm not looking at a plan and like, using a formula to figure out where I should be. I'm just like going by feel like I have an idea of like where my baseline needs to be, but everything's been adjusted like on a daily basis, but it's been like by feel it's been super cool. What been super, super cool. What made you want to go that route? Um, another quick thing that's related to this is like, I've been eating out a decent amount during this prep, man. Um, so I just wanted to not have prep be as much of a weight on my shoulders and a weight on my family shoulders and take away from like the social experiences, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, so yeah, I've been like, like if my mom makes dinner, like I'm eating what she's cooking and I'm just like weighing out the food sources. Whereas in the past I was like, if I didn't prep it and cook it, like I'm not having it. Mm -hmm. um, I've been ordering food and like picking it up and like eating a meal with my wife that like the other day, I literally picked up like a Greek salad, didn't weigh out the salad ingredients at all, just weighed out the chicken. I was like, all right, that's probably 20 grams of carbs from the salad. I know how much chicken it is. Screw it. And then I just made my own dressing, but like, it just takes that stress off of like, not every single meal I'm eating, like have to be prepped by me and cooked by me. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, as long as I'm making progress every week, why should I stop this? I thought I was going to stop this maybe at like 10 weeks out or eight weeks out or six weeks out, but like, I just kept making progress. So I would say like the frequency of me eating out has decreased, but I, I've never pulled it out, you know, and I'm, I'm 10 days out and I just ate out on Monday, two days ago. And I'm just like, I'm cool with it. That's dope. I love that, man. That's cool. That's uh, I think Eric Helms did something similar to that for his most recent prep, right? It was very intuitive. And I think to, to point people out, uh, some, some key things here is number one, 
the timeline Chris just broke down started in 2011. And that's prepping in 2011. That's not like, oh, I just started training in 2011. So um, he's got a lot of experience on top of being a researcher and, and a college professor in this field. So um, not only is he extremely intelligent, but a lot of experience, which plays a role into this. Um, the other thing I think is really cool too is, is the ranges idea. And this is something I've actually done with a lot more of my clients as of recently, um, even myself too, because it, you don't burn the same amount of calories every single day anyway. I don't believe, and we actually just did, actually it airs today as we're recording this, um, a research review, um, me and Brandon Roberts on my team, and one of the topics was fitness trackers. And that was one of the first things we laid out was like, very inaccurate when it comes to like energy expenditure. Like don't trust your Apple Watch, don't trust the treadmill, don't trust your MyFitnessPal, like don't worry about that. Like, um, so I'm not saying to go off of that, but if you can really learn over time, body awareness and, and, and energy levels. And, and I mean, when you can track things like, I know you have O-ring, I have one too. When you can look at your sleep and your, your stress levels and your recovery yeah. and your, your general activity, even if the accuracy of energy expenditure is not correct, is it higher than normal, lower than normal because of how many steps you took, whatever it may be. Um, that plays a huge role, you know, and I have, I have some people that are uh, athletes, functional fitness athletes, CrossFit athletes, people like that. And dude, they're, I mean, talk about like, just throwing random shit at a wall. Like it's, I mean, some of their stuff is structured shit thrown at the wall uh, because that's what they do. I mean, they have to be good at that sport of being able to perform in different energy systems at a whim, you know, which is very impressive. But yeah. some days are like walk in the park for them. And some days are just like, yeah. I'm like, damn, you did what in the gym? You know, it's just crazy. So having this like range of carbs and protein in, in to hit. And then also like the way I've looked at it and I'd love your thoughts is like, here's your range of protein based that on satiety. Cause even on the low end of the range I give you is plenty of protein to do what we need to do. Carbs is going to ba be based on your activity levels. And here's some kind of ideas and I'll give them examples. And then fats is more like, here's your range for flexibility because you're not going to do something so hard in the gym that you need more fats in your diet. It's just like be flexible with the fats to fit where your protein and carbs land within this range. Does that make sense? Spot freaking on dude. Like that's exactly what I do. Basically. Um, yesterday I ate more protein than my goal. And like, that's the first macronutrient I'll overeat. Like if I'm hungry, like, all right, screw it. I'm going to have more protein. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not, I'm literally not going to care at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, like, uh, carbs is based on, okay, what am I training that day? Am I doing like a really hard leg day or is it a shoulder and arm day? Um, sometimes I make that decision pre-workout. Sometimes I make it post-workout depending on like how good of, how good of a session it was. Um, and then yeah, like I don't track steps religiously at all. Like I don't even have a step goal, but I do have the aura ring and like, I'm aware of what my norm is. And I know like, okay, if I did 5,000 more steps today, it would be kind of stupid for me to eat the same amount of calories than a day that like my general activity is way lower or not stupid, but I can just say like, okay, I know I can eat a little bit more today. And like, I'm still in a deficit and like, I'm still making progress. That's the way I want to view it. It's like, okay, am I in a deficit? Am I making progress? How large of a deficit am I in? Do I even want to be in a deficit? Um, the biggest change bro that has happened since September to now is all right. So real quick, going into that September show, I was way behind. Um, I went on vacation when I was seven weeks out, um, with my wife, didn't have a food scale, didn't, uh, didn't weigh out one thing for seven days straight. I was using my fitness pal and guesstimating. Um, and I also took five consecutive days off from lifting. Okay. Middle of prep. So I get back, I'm six weeks out. I look at my photos. I'm like, shit, this is what I should look like at eight weeks out or even 10 weeks out. If I'm being honest with myself. So I'm like, I have six weeks to somehow like present myself on stage. Like I belong on stage. So time to go pedal to the metal a bit. It got more aggressive. Um, anyway, was happy with how, like I was happy with what I pulled off in New York, but I knew it wasn't my best look or it wasn't like my fullest potential, right? It was like my best look to date just because I added a lot of muscle compared to 2017 and I looked more mature, but like, it wasn't my best conditioning in 2017. I was more conditioned. So I was pissed about that. Right. Um, so dude, I was talking to so many like friends that are like trusted, like that are really good pros and that have been in the sport for a while. And they're like, bro, you got to lose like three to five more pounds before going into your next show. And I was like, I need to lose three to five more pounds of fat, not body weight. And I just had a feeling that like, I can pull this off. So after New York, 
on my training days, I ate at theoretical maintenance. And on my non-training days, I ate in a big deficit. And I just shared a photo yesterday. I was telling you about this before we like click record. Um, my scale weight went up by like one, uh, 2.4 to 2.8 pounds on show day. Like I was, yeah, like two and a half pounds heavier on show day, but significantly leaner. And I have DEXA data showing that like, I basically regained like four to five pounds of lean body mass while losing like six pounds of fat mass or something crazy like that. So again, if I was so focused on scale weight, I would have just dieted myself into the ground. I would have stayed in a deficit seven days per week instead of only two to three days per week. And uh, I wouldn't have brought what I brought to the stage this past weekend. So yeah, the, the intuitive thing has been cool. Um, and I remember speaking to veterans in the past and asking them about like, how do they prep? And they were just telling me like, you know, I just like reduce my carbs and fats over time. Protein always stays high and like, kind of auto-regulate like how much cardio I need, depending on how many weeks out I am. And I, I never understood it because it didn't seem super objective and super scientific. It seemed very artistic and very subjective. And I was like, dude, like, that's crazy. And I would explain to them like what I do. And like, I have this formula and I have this spreadsheet and they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And now I'm just trying to blend the two, you know, the art and the science of both. And uh, it's been super fun. I love that, dude. I mean, that's to me, that's what evidence-based is. It's anecdote and science put together, you know, and, and there's a lot to say about the experience of a lifter of a coach uh, having just as much value as what research shows. And I, I, I always love hearing stuff like this from people like you who are in the trenches of research as well. You know, it's super, super important. Um, and you're not the only one. There's plenty of people who do. Now, um, one quick thing for people listening, uh, just because I can, I can feel people increasing their calories because they walked a thousand extra steps. I think there's context that yeah. applies here. Talk to your coach first. I think um, it, it's all very relative to the individual. There's times where that makes sense. And there's times where it's like, oh, great. You got more steps and burn more calories. Great. It's just, you know, yeah. you're in a moderate deficit and you're going slow because you're a lifestyle client. Like maybe just let that be. Um, but the other thing I, I yeah. want to ask you too is what, what do you, what did you do between September to October, the two shows that allowed you to recomp that way. I think recomp is one of those. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic, you know, and there's um, like, did you increase carbs or calories while also increasing anything in the gym? So it was kind of like a eat more, do more approach or what do you think? What, what really did yeah. this? Yeah. To, to give you some context, um, my calories going into the New York show was around 22 to 2300 ish on training days and closer to 17 to 1900 ish on non-training days. And then post New York, um, my training day calories went to 2,700. Like, you know, that's like a, a 400 to 500 calorie increase, like right away, like not like a reverse, just like boom, 27. And then I kept my non-training days at like 1700 to 1900 calories, kept mm. it the same. Those non-training days are super aggressive. It's basically just protein, veg, and fat. Um, and maybe one serving of fruit, like maybe blueberries in the morning or something like that, but um, super aggressive on the non-training days. And then just at quote unquote, theoretical maintenance on my training days, I kept my intensity the same. I kept my training volume basically the same. I started adding in like one exercise for glutes just because I felt like my glutes atrophied. Um, but everything else stayed the same, like my quad volume, hamstring volume, chest, back, shoulders, arm, all my volume stayed the same except for glutes. Um, again, because my, my glutes weren't in and I felt like my glutes might've atrophied due to poor exercise selection throughout the last 12 months. Um, so that's the only thing I changed training wise was like doing a little bit more glute work, but yeah, I was able to increase the food pretty significantly on training days. So I felt way better in the gym and, um, I was getting better pumps. I was recovering better. I was performing better and it went really well. So and I ensured, like, I ensured that over that seven day week, I was still in a deficit. Got it. Because I was resting pretty frequently. Like there's some times where I train one day on one day off. Sometimes I do two days on, two days off. Um, it was really by feel. So those rest days came pretty frequently. Um, so that, that was the approach. Do you think it literally, is, do you contribute to just better recovery and performance? Like just better intensity in the gym and performance? Because based on what you just said, 
there's really no like reason probably popping up in people's heads as to why like you would have dropped body fat and built muscle built muscle yes you added calories and you probably push harder in the gym but dropped yeah. body fat do you have any yeah so i think i i think it's important to realize i probably like regained the muscle i lost mm. while being aggressive going into it so i'm I, i'm not going to sit here and say i built new muscle that i previously didn't have especially while i was at five percent body fat and going down to three and a half percent body fat or whatever you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. but i regained what i lost so it was like amazing it was like perfect um which dropped and, your body fat percentage which dropped my body fat percentage and i continued to lose actual fat mass because i was in a deficit when i looked at that seven day or 10 day mm. time span because of those rest days you know if i'm at theoretical maintenance four days per week and in a deficit three days per week weekly i'm in that deficit you know yeah so. how uh how tall and heavy are you right now i'm five seven and a half maybe five seven yeah five seven and a half to be honest uh and then right now today i was 161 okay 160 flat and he's literally peeled like he's absolutely shredded what, what's your body fat percentage right now because i know you probably dexed yeah so the lowest dex that i've had this season was 4.6 and then on a i ran a case study during my entire peak week That's cool. and on a on a jackson pollock seven site with the ultrasound the lowest i got was 3.6 nuts and that's i mean yeah. like for people listening like what I mean, eight is having a six pack probably, right? Like, I mean, that's, yeah. you're like extremely, extremely lean. But the reason I wanted you to say is because uh, I always get questions uh, about like, you know, like from, usually it's like women and they're like, I'm only eating 1700 calories and I'm not losing weight right now. Like what's going on? And they're shorter than you and they're 30 pounds lighter than you at least. Yeah. And so I was just like yeah. provide context where I'm like, hey, like when I want to get really lean, like I have days at that easily and I'm yeah. way heavier than yeah. you and taller than you. Like, so it's, it's common. So I just wanted to ask that for, for context. Um, no, I, that's, that's but, super important to mention. Yeah. And it's uh, good. Yeah. Just to share, like I have a, I have a 105 pound female eating 950 calories per day right now. And she's prepping, she's prepping. Mm -hmm. She's just a few weeks out. Um, I just want to throw that out there because people literally think like it's against the law to eat lower than 1200 calories or <laughs> no. lower than like if you're a female you're not allowed to eat lower than 1200 yeah. and if you're a male you're not allowed to eat under 1500 yeah. and i'm like i get it like for general health like you're, you're not trying to step on stage like yeah there's a lot of reasons why you don't have to do that but like if you want to just be more aggressive and you want to increase your rate of loss like you can and like you'll still be alive yeah and then i also take it into account i'm like sometimes there's like 240 pound bodybuilders that are enhanced and like they're eating 1700 calories per day at the end of the diet. I'm just like, we're going to survive. Like, yeah. We'll get through this. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, this is why I always tell, it's funny. Cause like, um, I mean, you know, our business, we primarily work with gen pop and I, I often say like advanced gen pop cause there are people who are serious about this shit, you know, but they're not competitors. Um, and yeah. I like the first thing I have my, my coaches do is study bodybuilders is read yeah. research from you, read the research that Brandon and our team gives them, read the muscle and strength pyramids, read the Cliff Wilson bodybuilding book, read yeah. all those kind of books because it's important. Like that's the science of body comes. If you can get somebody that shredded, pff, helping Jim pop lose 20 pounds again, seeing their abs is like piece of cake, you know? So yeah. it's important. Um, but man, we're running out of time. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Super quick. You, you mentioned abs. Mm -hmm. Um, and you said, you know, if you're like eight to 10% body fat, you should have a six pack. Yeah. That's true for most. I have pretty bad muscularity in my, my core, my rectus abdominis is not a strong suit because of me hating to train it. Like I don't enjoy it. And I'm, unfortunately that is, uh, something I need to change in this next improvement season. But I just want to say like the way that each individual stores body fat and their muscular development is going to make a drastic difference in their appearance. So if like somebody's really focused on getting abs, I just want to quickly highlight that it's not just about what you do in the kitchen and it's not just about your diet, but you also need a certain level of muscularity there. And if you do have more muscularity in your abs, you will have a more aesthetic midsection at higher body fat percents. Yeah. So I just wanted to, quickly throw it out there. Cause it's something that actually frustrates me a lot. Like 
I know people that their midsection looks better when they're 8% compared to when I'm freaking three and a half percent just because they have like thick blocky muscle, you know? I know exactly. It's actually the exact same thing with me. Um, When I did my prep, which was probably in 2012 or 13 or something, I was of the opinion that like, you don't need to train abs. They get trained when you deadlift and squat and stuff like that. You know, like they'll get taken care of. I'll do some abs stuff every once in a while. And I got extremely lean, but it took everything to finally see them fully visible and like really have like, you know, some veins and like actually look good. Um, cause I just hate training abs. And I even remember when I prepped for a photo shoot with you, I got really lean, man. I had striations in my quads and my delts, triceps, everything. Just not really my abs. Like it was that way. So like, that's actually something I've incorporated a lot of now that I'm not like trying to get shredded, but that way for whenever I do decide to get really lean again, they pop, or if I just want to get kind of lean, they're popping out more because it really does Hell make a yeah. huge difference. It makes a big difference, yeah. So for sure. it's a good point, man. Um, I don't want to hold you too long, man. Uh, we're going to have to have you on for a 27th time soon cool. <laughs> because uh, there's. Uh, I want to talk on sleep. I want to talk on intra-workout nutrition. I want to talk about intra-set stretching uh, with you because those cool. are three topics that I didn't get to cover. So I'll hit you up soon. We'll do this again, man. Um, for everybody listening, make sure you go check his page out. He's putting out a, an amazing content, and he's one of the – few researchers there are a handful out there but that is also like not only practicing what he preaches by being a natural bodybuilder competing in the sport but also coaching a lot of people in and outside the sport of bodybuilding on top of uh, being a researcher and teaching this at a college level so like there's nobody putting together such high level content that is uh truly evidence-based science and experience-based, you know, and anecdotal. So, um, I love what you're doing, man. I appreciate your time with us. Uh, can you tell everybody appreciate where to find you, you your website, your Instagrams, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely, man. So yeah, Instagram is just my full name. It's at Christopher.Barricat. And then, um, all of my contents on my website. So it's schoolofgains.com. Gains is spelt with a Z. Um, you'll get articles there. You can kind of keep up with the research I'm doing. Um, you can access the research through those links. Um, the podcast that I'm on, like this one kind of gets linked up there. Um, so you can find everything at schoolofgains.com. Um, and that's really it. Keep it, keep it simple. So yeah, I'll link those in the description yeah. for you guys. Definitely go check out the podcast he have on there because he's been featured on quite a few. Um, and I've, I think I've listened to them all, man. They're really, really good. They're always, you, always great topics. So uh, it's cool hearing a friend on there. So, um, again, man, Appreciate thank it. you. Thank you for jumping on again and spending some time with us. Thank you very much for having me, bro. It's always a pleasure.